Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our first guest this morning, Jens Nordvig. He led currency strategy and fixed income research for Nomura Securities. Then he founded Exante Data. He's now the CEO of that company. And Jens is in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Great to have you with us once again. Thank you very much. Let me start by asking you, Jens, if I could just about the, this trip. Let's, let's use that as the peg to talk here uh, about, um, about China and Chinese monetary policy uh, in particular. What's the status of, of, of market liberalization in China? What did we learn from the People's Congress of a few weeks ago? Well, so I think um, the the big dynamic we've seen this year is that they imposed capital controls uh, going into 2017, and those controls have been successful. So we managed to get the currency under control. It had been under a lot of pressure for the previous two years, and uh, that's kind of allowing the uh, authorities to again think about what they really want to do in the long term, and that is a more open currency market. So I think we're starting to see moves in that direction. So, for example, uh, they essentially had restrictions on how you trade the forwards in the currency market that they now lifted after having them on for two years. So that's the direction we're going. They're also super, super keen on getting foreign participation in the bond market. So they did a presentation in in New York, uh, first one ever, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So that's a part of that marketing effort. So that's their goal. How effectively have they been doing that? In other words, how much international attention or interest have they attracted? Well, so I think uh, a lot of investors globally got pretty scared of this control wave. Uh, if you're a, a big money manager, do you like the idea of capital controls? Absolutely not. So it's going to take a little bit of time before they do get comfortable with uh, the sort of uh, new new path we're on now. Uh, but a lot of people are definitely getting ready. So uh, you can sort of look at statistics of, of how many funds have gotten approval to trade Chinese bonds, and, and that list is getting longer and longer and longer. And we are starting to see some inflows. I wouldn't say they're huge, but they're starting. Uh, so I think that's something really to watch. Uh, if if there's a big move into Chinese bonds over the next couple of years, it could be one of the biggest uh, new themes in the global fixed income markets. Jens, I listened to the, the rhetoric from the president on this trip. Again, he's focused on this trade deficit, and uh, we look for clarity on what this administration's trade policy uh, is as this trip through Asia continues. How much of a weight is that on uh, currencies in particular, just the uncertainty about U.S. trade policy? Well, so we've seen it, and it's played out very clearly in Mexico, where obviously in the run-up to the election, we had a very big move. We had a further extension of the move uh, into early 2017, and then we calmed down a little bit. We've not seen very much in other currencies, I think because we've not had uh, any sort of specific disagreement that is about to explode. So this would be very interesting whether there's something more specific coming up soon, uh, but I guess the North Korea issue is uh, is one factor that's actually keeping Trump at bay in the sense that he doesn't want to push too hard until that issue is resolved. But it's a very important issue overall. So uh, at, at my company, we actually hired a, a specific person to cover this issue only. Uh-huh. That tells you something about yes. how focused we are on it. And uh, the uh, the negotiations around NAFTA are going to sort of come to ahead in the next three to six months. There's a deadline uh, in Q1. So we will get something there. And it's something that I think in, in some markets is underestimated how big the risk of a blow up is. 
Let me turn domestic if I could. Uh, Michael McKee, our colleague, sat down with the U.S. Treasury Secretary yesterday, and um, I was wondering, going into that interview, what you might have to say about the the strength of of the U.S. dollar, about uh, the U.S. strong dollar policy. Do you have clarity on that? Uh, Do we see a continuation of that strong dollar policy that's been in place now for for many years? Well, so I've I've made the point uh, for a while now that Trump is not exactly a strong dollar guy. Not a strong dollar guy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we, we have him talk the deficits down all the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he has actually been actively talking the dollar down early in the year, so uh-huh. uh, that's definitely his position. I, I think it, it, on the on the sort of dollar outlook, I think uh, we're moving into what I would call a more tactical phase. And what I mean by that is that we had a very big dollar appreciation move from the summer of 2014 to early this year, and when we've seen some pretty big retracement uh, from from February to September. And now we're starting to sort of bounce around in a range, and I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that we have come through a period where it was only the Fed that was tightening policy, mm. and now uh, other economies around the world are catching up. So the difference between how the U.S. is doing and other economies are doing is just not as big as it used to be, and that means that these big structural moves in the FX market, uh, they're probably behind it, and it's going to be more tactical from here. Let's talk a bit about the Fed that um, Jay Powell is going to inherit. Of course, Jerome Powell has been uh, on the Fed as a governor for some time now, but uh, he'll be taking over as chair if all goes according to what the president has uh, planned. What does this Fed look like? What's in its toolkit? How, how, uh, <laughs> if there's another crisis, uh, does, does it have all it needs? Well, the first thing I would say is that obviously we had the, the chair nomination that was important, but we also have a lot of other open seats at the, at the Fed. Yeah. So my former boss at, at Goldman, Bill Dudley, resigned uh, on Monday. That's another open seat. Uh, Yellen is probably going to uh, resign from the board. There's another open seat. We have Fisher's seat. So there's a lot of moving parts. We just don't know who's going to be setting policy in 2019, uh, like 18 and 19 and so forth. So um, so that's a, that's a big uncertainty. I think the, tr- the tricky bit is that on the one hand, the economy is doing better. Uh, and uh, we have these uh, names floating around who could fill those empty seats that sound hawkish. But on the other hand, Inflation is just not there. So what does the Fed do now if we have another couple of weak inflation prints? This is really a dilemma for the Fed. Mm -hmm. Do they see through it or do they pause the hiking cycle? The market is sort of buying into the notion that that December is a done deal. And uh, I do think December is likely. But if we have another couple of of weak inflation prints, I think the Fed is going to have to make a very difficult decision, actually. So that is something we have to watch carefully. We have another CPI print next week, so so watch that one. Yeah, is is that going to be the moment when we see uh, the, the first contours of a Jay Powell Fed? In other words, what's the, the the date on the calendar, the point at which we would see him making an imprint on on this Federal Reserve? Yeah, I think um, I think uh, if he does a speech after the next CPI number, let's say we have a weak CPI number, then a lot of people will be listening to how does he interpret that data. In the past, it's been Yellen's interpretation, and now they're going to be watching more and more what he says. So the first couple of speeches he's going to deliver is going to be absolutely key. And uh, I, th- I think he's been very balanced in the past, uh, balanced into how he interprets the data, and also quite pragmatic. So uh, it will be very, very important to see if he continues that uh, line of thinking. Let me ask you, Lassa, we'll come back here in just a moment, talks about some currencies uh, in particular. But let me ask you just about... Uh, sort of uh, the, 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 the composition of the Fed. You mentioned the vacancies that we have. 
Uh, how much does, does one person's leadership matter versus the full complement of the committee? And, and, and when are we going to get a better sense here of the, the shape of the direction that committee is going to go in? Well, I guess it depends a little bit on how forceful a leader you have, uh-huh. how forceful a chair. And uh, we, don't really, we don't really know exactly uh, how, how Powell wants to assert himself, but I think he's been seen as some, somebody who was sort of within the consensus. So from that perspective, it matters a lot who the other guys are, mm-hmm. uh, what the consensus is actually going to be. Uh, I think for, for the New York Fed post, uh, I think it's actually really important because Dudley was definitely in the um, dovish camp of the Fed in, uh, in the last several years. If we had a more hawkish appointment there, that could be really changed in complexion of the Fed. For example, Walsh, who didn't get the Fed chair uh, nomination, has been mentioned as somebody who could come out of the New York Fed. That would definitely be a shift, so that would be important. So those are the key points to watch out for uh, as we, we learn more about what the new Fed is going to look like. All right, well, let's come back here in just a moment. Talking with Jens Nordvig, uh, he's with uh, Exante Data, the founder of that company, the CEO of that company. He's joining us today from our studios uh, in New York, our Bloomberg 1130 studios. I am uh, downtown in the Oppenheimer Fund studios. Tom Keen making his way down here to join me as we broadcast from here. Jens Nordvig with us from Exante. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York as we continue our conversation about uh, geopolitics, fixed income, currencies uh, as well. And let me go to uh, the latest undulations of the, the Brexit debate, Jens, we have them get underway in, in Brussels again, and it seems like there's still the same intractability we've seen throughout this whole uh, process. What are you watching as all of this uh, unfolds when it comes to Sterling in particular? Well, so I think there's an interplay between Brexit, um, the currency, and then what the Bank of England is doing that's mm-hmm. very interesting now. So I think the Bank of England has essentially changed its stance. Like, initially it was very afraid of Brexit, and it led them to to be as easy as possible, and that has changed. So now what it's seeing is that uh, Brexit is actually generating a kind of supply shock in the economy, and the currency is very, very weak, and it's actually generating inflation. So the UK is one of the the few countries in Europe where there's meaningful inflation. Uh, They responded in November, and I think the more of this uh, political uncertainty we have that takes the currency down, Ironically, actually, the more the Bank of England will be forced to react and deliver more tightening to rein this inflation dynamic in. So um, it's it's pretty pretty important shift that has happened, and uh, I think we're going to see more of it. Jens, what did you make of the, the Bank of England's decision to raise rates at that last meeting for the first time since uh, 2007? You had the two most, I guess, technocratic members of the, the, the Monetary Policy Committee, the, the economists on the committee, uh, voting against it happening. Uh, what did you make of their decision to do it? Well, so I think it, it, it really has to do with, with the fact that uh, they've been wrong on the economy. Uh, they, they've been uh, expecting like a big, big, big confidence shock, and it just never materialized, right? So on the one hand, you have asset prices uh, pricing in something uh, very dire, and uh, the, the currency is a part of that. The currency is very weak, and that's generating inflation. On the other hand, confidence in, in the economy is not so bad. So consumer confidence is not so bad. Uh, business confidence is not so bad. And therefore, we've not seen the recession that was initially uh, projected. So they're responding now to being wrong about that and delivering a hike uh, to essentially at least remove the easing that delivered right, mm-hmm. right after Brexit. And uh, I think they'll probably have to normalize rates more because... We still have this disconnect between the, the forward-looking markets that is generating inflationary pressure and then consumer confidence that's not so forward-looking and they just can't wait until Brexit has happened to, 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 to see that confidence eventually come out. They have to be a little bit forward-looking as well. 
On the subject of, of Bitcoin, I have to ask you about this as I see this coming up more and more in, in, in conversations. Certainly you have the CEOs of major banks talking about it more, some expect, expressing some skepticism, uh, some calling themselves neo-Luddites as they, as they approach cryptocurrency. What do you make of where we are in terms of, of, of uh, acceptance of Bitcoin, acceptance of cryptocurrency? Well, it's, it certainly is a very controversial topic. Yeah. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually wrote a public letter uh, about it on ExcentureData.com. Uh, and um, it, it was not because we want to have a strong view, okay, this is going to go to a certain level, or it's a bubble, it's going to explode. <laughs> but it's because we're actually using Bitcoin as a macro indicator, similar to how we're using uh, other macro indicators. So, for example, China is a country we're focused on, uh, and we've had very interesting sort of capital flight dynamics playing out over the last couple of years. That's why they put in, in place the controls we discussed previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can use the, the spread in the Bitcoin market to sort of see, okay, how keen are Chinese residents in terms of getting their money out? So we're using it to analyze things. And uh, the market has gotten big enough that uh, this is something that really matters. So we're watching it. Uh, as a firm, we don't have a view as to whether it's going to go up or down, but we're using the information within that market to say something about other dynamics in terms of capital flows. And we find it very helpful, and it, I think it's getting bigger. Volumes are going up, so it's going to be increasingly important to watch those signals. Lastly here, with just about 30 seconds left, uh, tell me just how important uh, this tax reform process uh, is going to be for, for the dollar going forward. Uh, it seems like <laughs> there, there's optimism among Republicans that this is proceeding apace. A uh, what does it mean for, for the economy and for, for the dollar going forward? It's very important, like uh, nothing has really gotten done in this yep. administration so far, so they have to get this done to show some ability to do policy. And uh, we've already seen in the equity market pretty big moves in anticipation of this happening. Uh, the dollar has also strengthened a bit. If the tax reform does not happen, if we have some news in coming months that suggests that this is falling apart, I think the dollar is going to have a very hard time holding. I think it's might likely to drift meaningfully weaker on the back mm-hmm. of that news. So it's very important. Jens, thank you very much for the time this morning, both on the Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television as well. Do check out his interview from Bloomberg TV at TV Go on the Bloomberg. Uh, Jens Dorfvig-Vixante joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. It is a magical name from my ute in the Open Then Investment uh, Company, Oppenheimer Funds, which over the years, David, there was a fund a million years ago, the Oppenheimer Target Fund. Uh-huh. And they had a run of, I'll say, 20 years of growthiness, as Mr. Colbert uh, would say. <laughs> over the years, they've migrated back to a, um, I'm going to say, all in all, a global uh, view. And they've done that with some uh, better than good performance. Christian Mamani. Uh, with us, their chief investment officer. You're giving a speech in this beautiful building this morning, 10 a.m., the young troops walk in. What's your single message? The, the single message is in this sort of an environment, it's very easy for people to get uh, uh, kind of complacent or fearful. Uh, fearful because we we have had a very uh, long run, uh, market levels are high, and therefore anticipating some sort of a crash. Yeah. I think that can paralyze people. And at the same time, because the markets haven't corrected in a big way, kind of not anticipating uh, what sort of things, what sort of drivers in the markets to look at and 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 ensure that if things are going to change, uh, we 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 have right. some ideas where it's coming from. How correlated? 
are international markets right now, whether it's market to market, across asset classes. It's something you've got a bunch of quants that they look at it 24-7. What are the correlations right now? So the correlations in various markets is high. But I, I think the reason it is high is because the markets at the moment are being driven by synchronized global recovery. Ever since the uh, uh, energy crisis or uh, uh, the, the correction in oil prices, first quarter of 2016, mm-hmm. since that uh, incident, uh, the markets, uh, the global economies have come up in a, in, together. And therefore, markets have gone up uh, together as well. So it's, uh, the, they are correlated, but I don't think that's really a matter of huge concern. I think what we have to look at is what is going to happen over the next two years as opposed to what happened over the uh, last two years. At this point, it seems to us that growth in emerging markets is getting deeper while growth in the U.S. is flattening out. And I think as you think about your investment strategy, mm-hmm. that the, that's the thing that you, that's the theme that you have to incorporate in your thinking. How do you navigate that divergence then? If if you're seeing the the two <laughs> things split off in the way that they are, uh, is now a time to make moves? So I, I would say you know it makes uh, emerging market equities, emerging market debt. Uh, far more attractive than they have been at any point uh, because valuations in emerging markets are much better than they are in developed markets, especially the U.S. And uh, the fundamentals, economic growth in emerging markets is getting deeper uh, and it is getting less China dependent. So if you look at an economy like Brazil, which was a basket case two years ago, and if if this in 2018, if they grow at 2 or 3 or 4%, we wouldn't be surprised at all. So things are changing very rapidly in emerging markets. Growth is getting deeper, and I think that makes emerging markets far more interesting uh, from an investment standpoint than developed markets. Tom That's his, the big theme. Tom and his data check just a moment ago mentioning volatility. They're hovering around. Did I do okay? Said, Very good. Always okay, a good data check, Tom. <laughs> how, do you, how do you navigate that, uh, the low volatility that we've seen, and, and uh, do, you, do you sense that we could see an uptick in that in any time soon? Well, so, uh, you know, uh, low volatility, you look at low volatility and you always get worried. Yeah. You know, Am I missing something? Markets are too complacent. But I think you have to take a step back and try to figure out what is the driver of that low volatility. And at the moment, the driver of the low volatility is the synchronized global growth, low policy rates, and lack of inflation. Mm -hmm. If any of those things change... Uh, volatility okay. would go up meaningfully. But this is critical then. If any of those things change, one of them, or as you know, when they change, uh, Christian, it's usually a set of them change. Can you manage the various glide paths? Will it be emerging market pain, which some of us have enjoyed? Or is it a manageable where you can shift assets and portfolios as we enjoy those changes? So I, I think the, the, the pace of change is going to be more gradual than it has been in the past mm-hmm. uh, for two reasons. One, uh, the, the, the drivers of the, the economic drivers are far more stable. So inflation, which typically ends up upending things, uh, uh, really isn't uh, that, uh, that prominent a factor. And if it comes up, it'll come up very, very gradually. Yeah. So that's one. And second, <clears throat> policymakers are on the case. They are singularly focused on making sure that, that there are not significant dislocations in the economy. And that's why uh, policy rates well, are as low you, as they you are. Policymakers. I mean, I want to stay international here. And the president gave this uh, speech in, in Beijing today. Was that the ultimate mercantilist speech? 
I, I mean, come on. I, he went after Obama to Washington. I think he got Martin Van Buren in there. I don't know how he did that. But, but, but is it a zero-sum presidency in a world that you describe with Oppenheimer, which is truly global? I, I think uh, uh, approaching global trade on, uh, you know, in a pure mercantile way, I think, is, is not good for the world and it's not good for the U.S. and it's not good for uh, the overall growth uh, that we need for us to be, uh, for all of us to prosper. I think globalization is, is a good thing. I think it has certainly created certain dislocations in, uh, in some markets and some economies and we have to find ways of uh, dealing with that. But, uh, you know, the, it's a baby in the bathwater kind of a, an argument. The fact that uh, it has led to some unemployment in certain sectors of the U.S. economy doesn't make it singularly bad for the overall U.S. economy. Did you, did you see? We, we played it on television, David. It was extraordinary how he basically said, China, you're okay, but it's all these previous administrations. I was thunderstruck by it. Yeah, and I think if you look at the reaction of those in the audience as well, there was some surprise at what he, he had to say. You talked about emerging markets exclusive of China. Help us understand the role that China is playing now uh, when it comes to economic growth uh, in the developing world and when it comes to just investment more generally. So China is the second largest economy in the world and is growing faster than basically any developed market. Uh, the, the investments is a large component of that growth. Their savings rate is roughly uh, 50%, 48% to be precise. And uh, I, I think uh, th- that uh, volume of investments has impact globally because they end up being the largest consumer of commodities on a global basis. And, uh, and therefore, what happens in China is very relevant to what happens for commodity prices, what happens to emerging market exports, and all of, uh, all of that stuff. Uh, when uh, China was uh, slowing down meaningfully because they, uh, they cracked down on the investment in real estate and things like that, we had a commodity issue in the market. Subsequent to that, things have, um, things have uh, stabilized as they put more stimulus. So growth in China is very critical uh, for growth in emerging <clears throat> markets. Having said that, I think as China slows down and uh, as yeah. other emerging markets uh, kind of come out of their downdraft, the, the growth in emerging markets is becoming less dependent in Ch- uh, on China. And that's a good thing. Mm. That means that growth can be sustained and it'll be less volatile yeah. than it, ha- it was over the last five years. David Gurr and Tom Keen at the studios of Oppenheimer Funds uh, in uh, New York, in downtown uh, New York. And with us, Krishna Mamani, uh, Chief Investment Officer for uh, Oppenheimer Funds with a terrific uh, uh, international perspective. I want to rip up the script here, Krishna. I know that David wants to get the tax reform and all of our thoughts on the elections and what's going on in Washington. Um, you were at... Birla Institute of Technology. And this is northwest of Calcutta, is that right? Uh, yes, it's northwest of, uh, it's closer to Delhi than Calcutta. Closer to Delhi, okay. Yes. I have two questions. The smog in Delhi, I find absolutely stunning. Is the media overplaying that, particularly the BBC, or is it factors worse than what I experienced in Mexico City or Beijing? I, I think it's all true, unfortunately. It's all true. It's all true. Uh, you can eat the fog, as they say in Delhi. It's, uh, it's mind-bogglingly bad. Uh, and, and people say it's almost like 
50 cigarettes a, a, a day kind of an uh, environment. We have to, the, or we Indians and the Indian government has to do something about it because this is not uh, sustainable in the long run. So when you read and your team reads 47-page McKinsey BCG Bain documents on the build-out of infrastructure, what do you think of those documents and how do you invest for it knowing Delhi's desperate to fix what seems to be a world-class problem? So I, I think for India, that is really the crux of the issue. And that is the primary difference between how things have worked out in India as opposed to China. That is, uh, Chinese growth was, uh, for all sorts of political and economic reasons, mm -hmm. was very rapid because they could direct it. And in, in India, it's very difficult for them to do that. And uh, um, because the infrastructure is poor and the investment rate has not been as substantial as... Uh, uh, as the, was yeah. the case in, in China, uh, the, the potential or the, the risk to potential growth in India is significantly yeah. higher and will remain significantly higher relative to China. What you don't know, David, is, is when Christian and I were studying this stuff a million years ago, international investment was which concrete company should we buy? <laughs> that was literally the whole strategy. You bought one telephone, Telemex or whatever, Timex, you bought one telephone and one concrete company, done. And, you know, it's moved on to a little yep. greater sophistication, to say the least. Yep. You know, thankfully, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the world today is full of really, really good companies. And at Oppenheimer Funds, uh, the way we approach our investment philosophy is really not about geographies. It's not about India. It's not about China. It's really about great companies in India, great companies in China. Uh, even if there is an economy that we don't like, we can go always go out and find a company in that economy that we like, as we did uh, with, with Russia and Brazil, which were uh, yeah. uh, sucking wind for a while. Did you see how he got that messaging in there? That was smooth. It's, you know, I'm, Mark, I'm learning like, from you. Oh, <laughs> here at the Oppenheimer Fund Studios. David, jump in here on the U.S. Yeah, let me ask you. I, I know that you were waiting for, with bated breath here to find out who the next Fed chair was going to be. So we have Jerome Powell, who's going to be filling that position if all goes according to, to plan. Uh, what's this Fed going to look like? How is it going to be different from Janet Yellen's Fed, if at all? I, I don't think the, the, the core of the Fed is going to be dramatically, uh, dramatically different from Janet Yellen's uh, Fed. I think what is far more important is the fact that the, this is a later cycle Fed than Janet Yellen was. So I think it's, it, the, the policies that the Fed implements is not going to be because uh, the Fed is different. It's just the economic cycle is at a different point. And our expectation is that there probably will be some tightening next year probably will be some tightening in 2019. Whether that is three or four in 2018 and three or four in 2019, I think is up for debate. But the trend is, as economic growth in the U.S. remains stable and unemployment rate continues to go down, uh, the, the trend in the U.S. is for tighter policy rather than easier policy. The exact opposite is happening in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I think that's the one reason to like uh, emerging markets. Policy rates or interest rates in emerging market inflation in emerging markets probably uh, low or trending lower rather than higher, the opposite of what's happening in developed markets. What are the, the consequences of the uncertainty surrounding personnel when it comes to, to the Fed? Uh, Jeffrey Lacker has been replaced in Richmond. Bill Dudley's announced his resignation. There are numerous seats around the big conference table in the Eccles building that haven't been uh, filled with new individuals. What does that mean? Does it mean continuity by default, or does it mean there, there is a gap in understanding of, of what's going to happen? Well, there certainly is. Uh, if, but I, I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, it's really a political issue. 
so uh, with with the appointment of uh, Powell, I think uh, Mr. Trump showed us what he's looking to do. That is, he's not looking for radical change in policy because that doesn't really serve him well politically or from a from a growth perspective. So there might be other replacements, but the likelihood that those replacements are radical, mm-hmm. given the appointment of Powell, I think that risk has gone down, and the markets are kind of incorporating that in their outlook for rates. Very quickly here, uh, what's your outlook for tax reform? The, the likelihood that it happens, and what does it mean for the markets here? And I apologize, 30 seconds to feel uh, Well, I, I think <laughs> some form of tax reform probably gets done, because politically it suits everyone to get something yeah. done. Whether that is going to be meaningful and will change the direction of the economy, I think uh, I'm, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure. No. Uh, we will have some deficit, uh, some incremental growth, some tax reform. Uh, it doesn't change the direction of markets materially. Christian Mamani, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. He's with Oppenheimer uh, Funds. It is not the essay of the day, the week, or even of this November. It is possibly the essay of our labor economy in this financial crisis. Ned Phelps, as always, writes well, writes clearly. He has written a jewel for Project Syndicate, nothing natural, about his, I should say, natural rate (laughs) of unemployment. I can't say enough about the laureate's clarity in moving from the lessons we learned from Hicks and Marshall and Robert Solo of a school on the Charles River in Boston to Ned Phelps and the rebels of the 1960s. Well, Ned Phelps, honored to have you with us. What do we get wrong now in our labor economics? What's the number one message you have to this mystery of no wage growth? Well, I think the the big message is that the world is an awfully, it's much more of a complicated place than uh, we recognize in attitudes and beliefs and uh, fears and hopes, they all play a big role in uh, the behavior of workers, the demands of workers, uh, uh, wage setting by uh, employers and so forth. So what I did in that that column was I um, Mm -hmm. dreamed up um, three or four uh, factors that that might be slowing down the rate of increase of prices or right. the rate of increase of wages or both uh, because people are are kind of uh, disturbed by recent developments. We just saw the president, Professor Phelps, give a mercantilist zero-sum speech in Beijing on America in trade. All of that tenor of the president comes out of the agony of a part of America that's not enjoying our economic growth, our prosperity, and our wealth and income gains. If you were sitting with a president, how would you advise him to a better economy that doesn't harken back to a failed mercantilism? <clears throat> Great question, Tom. Um, well, I, I think uh, the most fundamental thing we, we can do is to get economic growth back. We've just got to do that. Um, I know there's a, a big debate raging about robots. Are they something that's good for growth, or 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 actually <laughs> will, will will they uh, ruin uh, economic life for us? But but just putting that for aside, 
for a, for a moment. Um, I think we have to to get the economy doing everything that's possible to uh, innovate more, invest more, get productivity rising. Then, then everything will be so much better. And those folks in Appalachia who are kind of desperate, well, maybe they'll pick up and decide to go to California after all and take advantage of, of um, the high and rising wage rates. Right now, the, 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 the market for their services is pretty bleak. I, I take what you're saying that we might see new pioneers heading west, go west, young man, and, and, and the like. Yeah. But when you listen to the rhetoric coming from Washington, from this president in particular, we hear about a, a renaissance of coal, for instance, or a return to <laughs> economies that we seem to have left, left behind. How much does that matter? How much does the rhetoric coming out of Washington matter to the uh, economic progress of this country? Well, I don't think the uh, people can eat the rhetoric. So, of course, uh, <clears throat> and and uh, I, I and I also think that uh, reopening the coal mines uh, uh, would would not be uh, a good signal to send to the rest of the world when we're trying to get the rest of the world to respect the environment. Uh, professor, within the battle that we've just had over John Taylor in rules-based central banking, and we've gone with presume, presumably Chairman Powell. Mm. Where does your Nehru fit in? Bow ties on TV wax philosophical, never on radio, never. wax philosophical <laughs> about Phelps and Taylor's Nehru. Yeah. <clears throat> Would you please explain to mere mortals what you invented? What did Ned Phelps rot? Um, I was one of those, like two of us maybe, I was one of those <laughs> who um, sort of uh, provided a theoretical foundation, for what it's worth, uh, for the idea of a natural unemployment rate. That no matter what the inflation rate is as a customary thing, whether it's, run at, whether it's running at 2% per annum forever or at 5% per annum, it's the, the unemployment rate that will accompany that will be the same because fundamentally the unemployment rate is determined by structural forces, not by the rate of inflation itself. Am I being clear? Clear to me. Tom? I don't know. I was dozing off. No. Looking at, I was looking at how Columbia is your... going to do this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about uh, how the Fed looks at the economy now. Uh, and as I mentioned a little <clears throat> earlier on the show, we heard from Janet Yellen a few weeks back speaking in Cleveland, talking about uh, reckoning with uh, forecasting in, in particular. What does the Fed need to do differently when it looks at the U.S. economy? Well, <clears throat> I do think that um, there are some significant consequences for the for the extremely uh, uh, cheap money, easy money policies uh, at the Fed and also at the ECB uh, in, in the eurozone. Uh, I, I think I think uh, financial institutions have earned very rates very low rate, rates of return and, and so that the, they uh, I think the financial sector is is not as healthy and robust, and uh, not helping as much with uh, helping businesses as as much as uh, mm. it uh, once w would have done. 
Um, Also, uh, I think it'd be good to just to try out higher interest rates and see whether uh, whether that wouldn't be okay. And and if it would be okay, that is that would be good because we want to be able to lower interest rates in the future when when, uh, demand weakens. But we can't at the moment because all interest rates are already so low. Now, we're going to have to leave it there, but that's an important point. Professor Phelps, we look forward to seeing you soon, uh, particularly this idea of trying out higher interest rates. He's a laureate of 2006, Edmund Phelps of Columbia University. And he'll David, be on Bloomberg, Bloomberg Television as well. I know speaking with Vaughn. Oh, is he Williams, coming? So I didn't know that. that yeah, I didn't know TV that. TV Go on the Bloomberg uh, I, I can't convey the importance of this essay in Project Syndicate. Uh, Mr. Phelps is of a certain vintage to bring a history into it and and for everybody caught up in the moment he pulls us back over a hundred years to uh, the mysteries we've seen about wage growth and about labor as well i put that out on twitter i'll continue to advance that over the coming days thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.